Hello to all our listeners. My name is Katie Butler, and thank you for joining us today on episode 14 of our Music Men's Minds podcast, Music is Medicine, Ask the Expert. We are a nonprofit organization that was founded nine years ago by Carol Rosenstein and her late husband, Erwin Rosenstein. When Erwin fell into the clutches of Parkinson's, Carol found that music was the one thing to keep the joy alive through the late stages of his life. This inspired her mission to serve seniors suffering from neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia, stroke, traumatic brain injuries, and PTSD using music as medicine. Thus, Music Men's Minds was born. I'd like to welcome our guest today, Dr. Teresa Allison. She's a professor of medicine in the University of California, San Francisco Division of Geriatrics. She's a board certified family physician and geriatrician and a PhD trained ethnomusicologist. She studies the role of music in everyday life in nursing homes, senior centers, and the homes of people living with dementia. She's particularly interested in the ways in which music builds community, supports relationships, and enhances well-being. Thank you so much for being here today, Teresa. Oh, it's a pleasure. So one thing we always like to ask our experts on here is what inspired you to pursue your current career path? Has music always had a presence mm -hmm. in your life? And how did you decide to intertwine your ethnomusicology studies with geriatric care? I'll try to give you the short answer. I mean, I've always loved music. I think that's common for a lot of us. Music is a, a very normal human social process occurring across the globe. Um, how I ended up doing an MD-PhD is a little bit of an accident. I started taking pre-med classes to improve my GPA so I could get into law school. And if that sounds wacky, it's because it was wacky. And um, long story short, ended up getting a degree in basically historical musicology, a combination of music history, music theory, and ethnomusicology, which is the study of music and culture. Um, or music and society. And then I got recruited to the world's wackiest MD-PhD program where they said, are you, we're looking for somebody who'll get a PhD in the fine and applied arts. And I, that's me. Um, but, but my current career path has been windier than that. Um, there was, as Carol was mentioning before this podcast, there was no real space for discussions of music and culture and dementia in the health sciences world um 20 years ago and so i ended up going the route of medical direction even though my phd was on the music life of a nursing home and slowly over the last 15 years have been able to move from medical direction back into research and i've spent the last five years on an nih career development award to study music and dementia caregiving at home and we now have our first, our lab has our first uh, major R01 five-year grant in the hopper, which I'm really hopeful for um, because AIM-3 will involve observing music men's minds, public facing events like last year's Valentine's concert to really observe the social and relational interactions that emerge in these performance settings. But yeah, at the end of it, I love music. I love my grandparents. It all comes together. So could you give us some highlights from these kinds of discussions and research publications that yeah. you just found yourself in the world of, you know, if we were to give a TED talk, for example, what would you want people or the general public to take away? <laughs> I 
would practice a whole lot more before I gave a TED talk, but my improvisational answer is that um, my first study was a two-year longitudinal ethnography of a very unusual nursing home with 40 to 80 hours a week of music and arts programming. So if you can picture a nursing home where people enjoyed living there, where growth and reciprocity were core values, where independence was a core value, and I learned that people could become artists after long-term care institutionalization. Um, and more recently, I uh, have worked with Julene Johnson on her randomized clinical trial of community center, senior center-based choirs, the Community of Voices Project, um, which showed increases in meaningful engagement and social engagement, and I think most importantly, incredible sustainment. They did a trial of 12 choirs, now there are 15. Studies long gone, universities long gone. Collaboration continues between the Area Institute on Aging and the Community Music Center. Um, and now I've moved to the home, which is my home turf as a doctor. I'm a, I was a house calls doc for over a decade. And we go to the homes of the people living with dementia and their care partners to sort of see how does music fit into your life? How has it changed as dementia has progressed? How can we bring it back? How can we harness music's power to support relationships and bring joy to people's lives? And all the new studies are in process because we're just wrapping up the last study right now. And so in terms of relationships, I'm sure that family and caregiver relationships are sort of one of some of the primary relationships. What role do you think family and caretakers play in these types of interventions? And do you feel like music can improve their quality of life as well? Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, one of the most striking findings in our pre-COVID in-home study was that the professional caregivers all reach for music. You know, it's been, it's been, I think, a decade since Dan Cohen started the Music and Memory iPod project and the Alive Inside documentary sort of hit the internet. Um, almost all of the professional caregivers have some form of experience with someone with dementia kind of waking up or engaging. And so they're very intentional about how they bring music into the shower during bathing time or bring music into the dining room during eating time or to relax. Um, family caregivers were much more of a mixed story. You know, people with nursing or professional training also reach for music as if it's a thing that you can bring into your care caregiving. Um, but when caregivers got really stressed or they got injured or they got sick, music was one of the first things that went. And it wasn't deliberate, it just kind of, you know, the Bluetooth connection broke, there wasn't time to fix it. They, they, you know, the record player broke and they didn't know how to set up a Spotify account. Very removable barriers, but big ones. And so I think that given the right support structure, music could actually become a very important part of the caregiving relationship and also of the self-care of the caregiver. How well would you say the effects of music are known across the medical field and particularly in nursing home care? Yeah, so in nursing home care, um, the Music and Memory Project really gets a major shout out here um, because after the documentary, uh, two large scale 
trials were conducted, one across the entire state of Wisconsin and one in California, they could not randomize double-blind the study, right? You kind of know if you're listening to music, you can't tell someone they can't listen to music. So the studies are not like drug trials, but they do show measurable effects in behavioral disturbances and the need for psychotropic or psychiatric medications. These are crude proxies that suggest that maybe we're meeting people's needs better. Thanks to music therapy, um, music is a is a bedrock activity in nursing homes. Even if it's the sing-along, there's something. There are visiting musicians. There's something in every nursing home. Not necessarily enough, though. So I want to ask what the main disparities you found across diverse patient populations are and how family and community medicine can help address some of these disparities. That's a difficult one. My studies are very small. But I can say from our small studies, and particularly the, the two studies we did pre-COVID and the one that we're finishing up now that was done during COVID, COVID, you know, exposed every disparity it could expose. And intersectionality is a very useful framework here because we're talking about intersecting forms of discrimination. Right? Not only racialized mistreatment or structural racism or sexism, but also ageism and the stigma of cognitive loss. Put these things together and you have a hot mess. Um, a big piece of it is also economic. So we find that members of some minoritized communities are more commonly employed in, in certain front-facing jobs like food service that were much harder hit by COVID. And so you get in this huge mess. And where does music come in? Like I said, music is one of the first things to kind of disappear. And that is magnified if it's not just that you don't have time to fix the Bluetooth account, it's that you can't afford the new device that you need to hook it up. You can't afford the fancy Sonos system. You can't afford to replace the turntable. You can't afford to hire in a music therapist. Because remember, music therapy is still not adequately reimbursed if it's reimbursed at all in this country. So yeah, I have I have sobering commentary, but not not large enough data to support it. I, I really appreciate the commentary and I would love to ask if there are ways that groups like Music Men's Minds or other community groups can help breach these barriers or make yeah. a more conscious effort. Yeah, I think one of the big things is, um, and, and Carol should jump in here because she's the one who's, who's done this outreach. One of the big things is to remember that music is a marker of identity. And we all have multiple identities. So whether I'm engaging through the Swedish Club of Denver and singing Swedish folk songs because that is part of my heritage, right? Or I'm listening to hip hop with my 15 year old, or I'm, driving, you know, we have, we have many identities, our ethnic identity, our local identity, our heritage, our communities, our preferred musics. Recognizing music isn't one thing, and not just assuming everyone's going to listen to Sinatra because they're 80, is really important. And so listening, asking, getting local musicians involved, getting community musicians involved, 
um, can be very important. Dr. Jenny Gubner is doing something along these lines at University of Arizona. Um, can I take a second to talk about her Serenata project? Absolutely. So Dr. Gubner is interesting. She, her original research is in, in tango music in Buenos Aires. Um, but she teaches at the University of Arizona, and she wanted to um, do a music student service learning filmmaking project with the local community. She'd already had many years of experience implementing the Music and Memory Project with college students. And she developed a project called the Serenata Project based on this concept of serenades, which is a Latin American tradition of just what it sounds like singing outside someone's window or outside their doorstep. And so this is all done in Spanish language. The students come into the community. They go into the homes of people who have dementia. They sing, they reminisce, they talk together. And it's really caught on like wildfire. They were in, they've been invited to present this at one of the local community outreach events. Probably 1,300 people came by the, came by the booth. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. And, and this is targeted directly at a non-English speaking population. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for that sort of thing. And it is beautiful that music isn't just one thing to any, any person. And I'd like to circle back to the community of voices study mm -hmm. with, that you did with Dr. Julian Johnson and music, not just being one thing to us. Do you think that contributes to music, not just having one benefit in our lives? Absolutely. Um, one of the findings that was most striking when we did focus groups with the folks in the community of voices study was, um, was the importance of cross-cultural music and cultural humility. And so, you know, a couple of, some of the choirs were Spanish language, some were English language. And in the Spanish language groups, because it's San Francisco, Spanish was not a proxy for a country. This was not a Mexican-American group or a Honduran group. People were from all over Latin America and they brought music from different countries and they brought music from home. There were a fair number of people who were not born in the US and they loved learning these other musics. And we found this in the English language groups as well, although they, they spoke less about it in their focus groups, that people just really loved learning. Um, so I think one of the benefits is that of lifelong learning and constantly stretching the brain to grow. And another is this business of cross-cultural understanding and breaking down stereotypes. How does that match up with the sort of ways that plasticity might decline in later adulthood? It's a great question. I am not a neuroscientist. I live with a neuroradiologist, so I'm painfully aware that I'm not the neuroanatomist. Um, but that said, we do have an increasing understanding that the brain continues to develop. It isn't all neurodegeneration. We have clear observational evidence of people with dementia learning to play new instruments, to sing, to learn new songs, to learn songs in foreign languages, um, and to write new songs. And from the observations, of people learning, we can intuit that there is neuroplasticity. The fMRI studies are ongoing. Um, and actually, Dr. Johnson has has one project in the pipeline that we are hoping will 
will demonstrate some of that neuroplasticity. So lastly, from my end, what are some other meaningful activities and community activities that can improve quality of life and mental dexterity, like film versus yeah. music, for example? The short answer is it's the thing that's most meaningful to you. Um, in our 2018-19 study, we found that meaningful activities were transformed over the lifespan but unchanged in terms of the underlying source of meaning. And so tapping into that underlying source of meaning is the key thing. Somebody for whom their congregation, their religious congregation is a, a core piece of who they are is somebody who will continue to remain engaged if you can, even when they can no longer go to services, bring the services to them, bring the community members to them. Somebody who lives for their dog is somebody who's really going to do well with a visiting pet program when they can no longer take care of a dog themselves. And I think the most important thing is intergenerational work. Um, both Dr. Gubner and um, Dr. Victoria Sheets up at uh, University of Victoria have shown really clearly the importance of bringing older generations and younger generations together, especially in choirs, music making together, listening together, um, but I suspect other areas as well. Um, I think that getting people out of age cohorts and bridging across two generations is very important. I know that Carol has talked a lot about that intergenerational piece, and that's been a part of Music Men's Minds for a long time. So I'd love to turn it over to Carol for mm -hmm. any questions you may have, anything you want to share on that. Thank you so much. I mean, I'm I'm sitting here aghast that we we have so many intersections <laughs> that are right in the pocket together. And and now what you're talking about as fact truly was just for me, um, sheer hypothetical as I as I continue to work with our seniors. But yes, several points that, that have touched me deeply. Uh, yes, I think one of my biggest surprises working with seniors was to be able to know the genre of music that they were naturally drawn to understanding that there are memory storage cells that can take them back in time to their favorite music. But when we changed genres and started to play a Beatles song yeah. <laughs> and just let it boom over the speakers for two, three repetitions, my God, they got on the bike and they rode. Yeah. And that was so surprising to me. It was surprising to me, too, the first time I saw it. It was 2007. I'm in an egress-controlled wandering unit, and here are three, four, maybe half a dozen non-English-speaking people absolutely getting into Michael Jackson. And I guess we shouldn't be so surprised, right? We all like to learn new music. And if our underlying sources of meaning remain stable, in not every form of dementia, but certainly in Alzheimer's and, and most vascular dementia, 
shouldn't, shouldn't we maybe expect that we continue to love to learn? And I don't want to overstate this. Remember, my studies are small, like N of 20, N of 50. Um, but it, it, it's very validating to hear that you see this again in the Music Men's Minds groups. Yes. And I see it in every nursing home I work in, and I see it in house calls. I see it all the time. Yes. And uh, hearkening back to Alive Inside, the mm. Dan Cohen and Michael Rosato, um, who really brought some of these concepts to the world initially, mm -hmm. uh, was such a, an awakening for me. Yeah. And, uh, and the work was so beautiful. And yet, um, we know that throwing in the socialization aspect of music sharing was, uh, was something that they didn't know initially as iPods were on seniors' heads and you were reading the language of expression and knowing something wonderful was going on, um, that it was an insular world. They were still on their own enjoying what was wonderful. So to be able to open up and make this a social experience and bring everyone to, the, to their party Yes. Another beautiful moment in time to know that this has to be shared and the socialization aspect yes. has to be included. It, it, it does. You know, in the community voices trial, there were actually three aspects that they were going after, right? There was a cognitive and the social, but there was also the physical. So in that group of choirs, they started with warm up exercises and they did a fair bit of the singing standing. And I, think we need to integrate this as well because what is the single biggest thing you can do to avoid getting dementia or to slow progression exercise I mean don't drink don't smoke and exercise and so if we can get everybody up and singing and moving and socializing makes me wish the three of us could get up and dance and truly, uh, I see this happening at our in-person groups in L.A. Mm -hmm. And there are some people that come to dance alone. Oh. And, and it is absolutely priceless. They're, apho they're aphasic. Uh -huh. and, and, and they hear the music and they cannot sit down. And, and our fifth dimension yeah. courses at the Brentwood Presbyterian Church in their sanctuary and so it is a sight to behold to see a group of seniors who only want to dance. And then it becomes infectious and contagious. And our choir loft empties out because they want to go jitterbug with, with, with who's dancing. So it quickly turns into a party where our seniors on stage are drawn to be able to move with those who cannot even say their name. And, and, and I mean, for me, this is such a gift <laughs> that landed in my lap. And this is such a gift that you created. I mean, I think we need to take a moment to re recognize the degree of safe space that you have created, that people can come to a singing event who cannot sing, and, and Katie, I don't know if you know this, but not one of the beautiful things about music is that people with dementia can continue to sing after they are unable to speak. 
but there are cases where people can no longer even sing. And so to, to have this environment in which we bring the body we have with the cognitive and physical function we have, and we are welcomed and we are included, this is the kind of space that then opens up to people with hearing loss who might otherwise feel that they're unable to participate in music when they can still feel a beat and they can still see and entrain and move. And of course, this is is demonstrable in our Parkinson population. Yeah. Where they are stripped of traditional language skills. We have a, um, a Parkinson patient who's been with us now maybe five, six years. So I've watched his deterioration. And now David Soli today, aphasic. All you get out of him is a little, 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 little he just continues on like everyone is following every word and then he picks up his mic and he turns on the music and he will continue to sing the entire song audibly mm -hmm. and we actually saw a little uh, research video that we created with him and our music therapist mm -hmm where the music therapist asked him what he had for breakfast mm -hmm. and his response was blah, 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 blah. And then she did some rhythmic timing with him. Within a minute or two, she asked him the same questions about his breakfast and he enunciated while tapping on his chest to mm -hmm. the rhythm of the music, the rhythm of the yeah. beat. I talk about electrifying. Yeah. And so this is what we know that we are gifting the Parkinson yeah. world. But that's only part of the, the gift that we're offering. It's an important part of the gift. And it's also a stark reminder of the importance of respecting the full interprofessional team. Music therapists have known how to do this for decades speech and language pathologists, the folks we used to call speech therapists, have known this for decades. The Lee Silverman Vocal Training Program for Parkinson's uses music, uses singing on a pitch uh, to help people produce spoken word. And we know from, the, from these multiple smaller studies that after people with Alzheimer's sing, their communication improves. Yeah, it's a little maddening that this isn't reimbursable for music therapy. At least it is reimbursable for speech and language pathology, but that's, again, these are limited things and they don't, they don't get enough press. Absolutely. Now we do have a tri-weekly Zoom platform with a board certified mm -hmm. music therapist. We're working with yeah. a company called Harmonic Changes out of Chicago mm -hmm. and there's one particular board certified therapist, her name is Shelby, and she will end up having a stone talk. And here we have these stone faced people, seniors with caregivers sitting on our platform, absolutely silent. And in a few weeks, their hand is up 
as the caregiver is requesting his or her favorite song. We give them an open mic and you hear them actually talking. Yeah. It is just so moving. And we have yeah case after case that needs to be studied. And we have the fertile soil for the researchers to step on. I mean, I would love for you to come on our tri-weekly Zoom platform and see us in action. Oh, that and sounds then, like fun. Yeah, please and, do, and Teresa. Speaking not just of what sounds like fun, but also of research, I will keep you in the loop with that R01. It got a promising score, but we still don't know yet. We may not know for several more months, but I'm I mean, being able to observe the many community organizations across the country in these public events and and to really look at that social aspect. I'm really excited about that. And well, I will spread the word. Stay close. And also from a cultural standpoint, uh, we were very lucky recently, a few years now, to meet a drum circle facilitator who worked for Remo Belly for 25 years. And so he is an expert in the world of drumming and is a, a world-class drum circle facilitator with credentials and an entire go-to global team of drum circle facilitators. And we now have four drum circles up and running in New Jersey with four more are on its way, on their way. They're looking to have an event in December that's going to beat the Guinness Book of Records of having more drum circle pounders, <laughs> noisemakers in any one drum circle ever known to mankind. That's fantastic. And, and we have learned that going even deeper into the culture of music takes us into the realm of the, orig the origin of, of rhythm and that you don't need to sing. That's kind of the cherry that comes with it. But mm -hmm. the basic gift of the vibration of music that connects one and all. And now that we're global, we have uh, people in Rwanda and Uganda that zoom in. We had a big peacock party last Friday on our Zoom session. We're now in partnership with NBC Universal Peacock volunteer team of 50 people across the country. And of course, one of our undergraduate students who worked with us prior to graduating, she's taken us into her into her graduate a real world job. And she's connected us and they came on a platform last Friday. It was a free for all. And wow. our people from Africa zoomed in and did drumming presentations for us, all dressed in their national garb. And we were rocking all the way from Africa on our that. Zoom platform as six women pounded their drums, chanting and singing. It was breathtaking. And then sending their love, my friends, we love you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. We love you so much. My friends, my friends, they just repeated it. 
So the drumming as basic rhythm has connected us to a population that we really didn't even know were out there. So we are growing and experiencing the reality of the music connections from the beginning to the end. And it is, it is phenomenal and so gratifying to research. It's amazing. It is amazing. And truly, our tri-weekly Zoom platform, mm -hmm. we say it's fun, it's free, and it's therapeutic. And we've had our people in rehab, in hospital beds that Zoom in. We see nurses running around singing as they're <laughs> listening to our, to our platform. And vicariously, our work is really, you know, got multiple tiers. It's not only the patient and the caregiver, yeah. but those in the environment that are also getting a dose of music medicine. Yeah. And to be connected with someone like you, Teresa, is such a gift. And my gosh, we're so happy that John is with us and expanding our MMM horizons. And for you to do your work and to recognize who we are, I mean, we are so deeply honored to know you, Teresa. It's it just has, beautiful. It has been an honor and a delight to get to know you and to know this work. And I really look forward to future collaborations. Thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. And Katie, thank you, dear, for orchestrating this and hosting this. I don't want to belabor this because I know that Teresa is so busy and needs to be back uh, at her desk of busyness. So I think. <laughs> can I can I quote that desk of busyness? <laughs> <laughs> you may, you may. And of course, you know, the word the word for the day is neuroplasticity. Mm. When I was a student in the mid-60s, my neurology professor told me with no uncertain terms that the cells belonging to spine, brain, were, uh, were of materials that could not be reproduced. And what you got, and if it became decrepit, that was the end of the line. I mean, yeah. true. That's no. What this I is true. This is this is also in the mid sixties. We thought that nostalgia was a bad thing, <laughs> right? Senile reminiscence. Talk about poisonous language. We Isn't now understand it? that these are processes that help us to grow and to learn, and that we can grow and learn. And to think that the white matter is reproducible mm -hmm. and healable. And so to think about a nerve regrowing is one of the happiest moments for me at age 78 to know that what I learned in the 60s is verboten and it's not true. So I'm so happy to be part of the, the current culture of music appreciators. And again, deeply grateful to have you on our platform, Teresa, you in our live, Teresa. Thank it you for taking the time today. Such a delight. Thank you so much for having me here. So, so proud.
to align with you, Teresa. Thank you very much, Dr. Teresa Allison. <laughs> Thank you, Carol and Katie. Thank you, Teresa, again, for joining us today on our Ask the Expert podcast. We're really grateful to have you in our network, and we're really excited to see what you do next. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about Music Men's Minds or contribute to our cause, please visit our website at www.musicmensminds.org. Donations can be made through our webpage. We appreciate your support, and we'll see you next time.